Welcome back to the Startup Stories podcast. Today, I am joined by Chris Dolezalek, also known as CD, who is based in the San Francisco Bay Area. And I'm sure he will tell you how much I might have butchered his name right now. CD, how how are you? Uh, how, how are things going today? I'm doing great. Um, did great on the name, but I do go by CD because everywhere I go, there's a Chris. And nobody yeah. likes to say Dolezalek. When I was a school teacher, they just call me Mr. D. So, <laughs> That's <yeah>. great. <laughs> awesome. And, and, you know, currently, Chris, our CD is uh, the... Uh, executive vice president of R&D over at Hum Capital. Um, Chris, can you give us a little bit of insight into what Hum Capital is and, and kind of how that has come to be? And then we'll, you know, peel the onion back. Sure. It's actually really relevant to the startup stories in general, because um, one of the things that attracted me to Hum is that it's got its focus on helping startups. And when you think about startup financing, a lot of them get financed through VCs and that can be by coastal because a lot of times VCs like to invest in people they know because we'll get into it more, but startup success is all about people and VCs trust certain people. And the founders of Hum Capital thought, hey, now that every startup is doing its finances online, QuickBooks Online or whatever, Stripe, you know, we could pull that data and analyze how well a startup is actually doing and kind of democratize the notion of who should get the funding and present a nice clear picture to VCs or lenders that want to help startups grow. And so the idea is instead of having it be bi-coastal, which also tends to be very often white male-led startups, mm -hmm. um, make it about, is this company looking good? Are its finances looking good? We do live connections so we can even do trend analysis and compare them to other companies that have done well or have struggled and we compare that to criteria that investors give us that say, what's their risk tolerance? What are they looking for? You know, how much do they want to see invested in R&D versus marketing versus sales? How much profit versus expense do they want to see? What does the EBITDA need to look like? Mm -hmm. and so we take all of their preferences and then match them with how a company's doing. But we can also feed that back to the company and say, hey, in the eyes of an investor looking at your finances, you're great here, here, and here, but this looks like maybe you're investing a little too much in marketing, right? Yeah. Um, the other cool thing is we can do a little what if and say, okay, if you take a loan for this many dollars and you pay it off like this, this is also how it would impact your finances. And right. so give them an analysis. And, and for startups that are successful, they're usually not successful because somebody's really good at pitching their company. It helps but they're, they're experts in what they do, right? Mm -hmm. And they can spend a ton of time trying to raise money, going on roadshows, creating presentations that are tailored. And the whole idea is to take that effort away and make it really easy for a startup just to connect their finances and, and not have to spend all that time and thinking and then just match it up with investors and create that marketplace. Yeah, I think, and it sounds like Hum kind of, it's like they connect, you know, the connectors there, uh, making, finding, you know, you know, the people on, on both sides and being able to be like, hey, this person A could be good with person Z here. Let's, let's make that happen. Um, exactly. And, you know, I know you, you mentioned kind of, uh, you know, a lot of VCs tend to invest with people they know. Um, how, you know, how have you, I guess, like, what is the why that, you know, Hum kind of has gotten started and in being like, hey, it's not necessarily, you know, yes, who you know is always going to be important, 
but it's, it shouldn't be the most important thing if you've got this great product with these great finances and, and want to navigate just because you're, you know, a 23 year old that lives in Nebraska and doesn't have access to Silicon Valley or New York city or Miami. Um, like what, you know, I guess is that, was there like a part of you that was like, Hey, let's, let's look out for the little guy a little bit here. There's definitely a part of me. Let's look out for the little guy. And the previous startup I worked at was doing personal loans for the mm -hmm. little guy on the individual level. I'm always interested in helping out. And, you know, there actually talked to um, the founder of Social Capital who said there's three ways to help out the people in the world. One is through finances. The other is through healthcare, And the third is through education. I haven't done healthcare yet. I've talked to a lot of companies but helping companies financially, because you can not only help the company and the CEO by doing that on a more widespread basis, you're also creating job opportunities and growth for the individuals. And so that, mm -hmm. that was really cool. Um, and Blair Silverberg used to be a VC starting, I think at age 11, he got some money from his bar mitzvah and he started investing that. And so he really got into the whole dynamics of how do investors make decisions and, and how do those pan out? Cool. Now, I, again, I think the knowing the people in some ways is important, but how do you know people you haven't met? And so the finances, in a way, I believe, are a proxy for the people that are running this company are making the right decisions and it's paying off for them. Mm -hmm. Right. Ideally, we could open up their brains and look at them and say, OK, do they have the right mindset? Um, and I think it does require a certain mindset to to make a startup company successful. For sure. I think, yeah, having that, the, the financial background and understanding how the financials work is a huge aspect of, you could have the best product in the world, but if you can't figure out the backend finances and to make it viable, then, you know, it, it fades away pretty quickly. Um, so that's great. And, you know, I guess, you know, go stepping back quite a bit, um, you know, you've been, you've been involved in the startup scene and the tech world and Silicon Valley since, you know, for, since the early eighties, um, what has what got you into that like what at what point in your life or during college were were you like hey this is this is going to be exciting this is going to change the way the world works and when did you realize like yeah this is i'm on a rocket ship let me let me figure out what i'm doing here and you know talking to different people i'm sure it was more of a tight-knit community back then a little bit in silicon valley um but just want to hear yeah. your experience on how you got started in all of this yeah, so in college, I studied physics for lack of anything better. My dad said, you're fifth generation physicists, study physics. And the <laughs> cool thing about physics is it helps you really think about how the world works, but from a theoretical perspective. And you keep realizing that theory isn't good enough. You need to come up with a better one. Yeah. Um, but I'm a dual citizen, and I, I used to go to Germany as a kid a lot. And then I, during college, I had to work in the summers to help pay for it. So I kind of missed Germany, but I didn't have any money. So I thought, okay, maybe I can get a job in Germany. And I found this article in Spiegel, German magazine, about an American-born dual citizen who came to the States, studied physics, and went to Germany, but didn't have any money. So he started this little startup of four people in an apartment. Yeah. And I said, I'm going to write that guy. And he says, yeah, if you're ever in Munich, stop by and we'll chat. So bought a one-way ticket, headed over there, chatted, and... The interesting thing was we were the first company in the world to build a software development environment. Oh, so wow. our whole theory was how to help people develop software. Cool. Um, and so that was fun. And we did it back then. A lot of people developed software on mainframes, which were ridiculously expensive. So we built it on a little mini computer 
And I love getting into that. It was like writing the operating system from the ground up and doing that in a heterogeneous networked environment and really understanding the tech. And the deeper I got into the tech, the more I got excited about tough problems. Mm-hmm. And somewhere along the way, especially dealing with software development methodologies, I realized the most complex computer system in the world ain't got nothing on humans. Yeah. Right? <laughs> I sort of got more fascinated about how how do you build successful groups of teams, organizations, companies. Um, and that led me into the product management there and then eventually into management. Um because I think that the human aspect of it combined with the technology is what makes it really interesting. Would you say that that is kind of, you know, with the AI craze going, going big right now and really being brought into the spotlight and mainstream, do you think that same statement is holding true today where, you know, yes, AI is super powerful and can do all these wonderful things, but you still need that human component a little bit for a, a lot of, a lot of tasks, a lot of, a lot of things and kind of to bring that, empathy uh that you just don't necessarily get from a computer like is that are you seeing a lot of similarities from when you were starting and what you're seeing today well it depends on how you see similarities the only constant is change as they like to say um (laughs) so i think much as ai is about machine learning and improving your knowledge in the computer same thing is true for human transformation i think we always have to keep learning and keep adjusting to what's available out there. And there's mm-hmm. all kinds of stories about how rapidly technology is evolving, right? That yeah. you could start studying at a great university, and by the time you graduate, the, the things that are available and the jobs they're hiring for are ones that didn't exist when you started your studies. So this is also why I got into teaching, is to learn about learning, is as humans in a world where the technology is evolving this quickly, You two need to continuously evolve and adapt. And the same thing is true in startups. All the startups I've been at have been faced with lots of changes and what's made them succeed is being able to adapt to a changing world. So Mm -hmm. I do think, I think it's really important that we keep growing. Um, I read an article by a guy from Andreessen who said, we no longer need 10X engineers because you know, with low code or no code, nobody needs to know how to do things that deeply. And I'm like, well, somebody is writing those systems. Right. Right. And and there is still deep knowledge that's needed um, in certain areas to keep evolving these things. Right. And we thought with AI and ML, we have it all. And then along come the large language models. And how do those all work? And uh, mm-hmm. I've been playing around with those at HUM as well now. And seeing how we can use those to analyze how a company's doing and how we can then also convert that insight back into human language for which the LLMs are great, right? How do you explain to somebody the financial trends of their company in this market relative to other companies? Right. Yeah. I think it's like there's, yeah, a human has to understand some component of it uh, to get it. At least right now, who knows what, what might happen in the future. And yeah, as you said, you know, change is going to continue to happen. Um, and you know, on change, like within, within your own life, within, especially like, you know, earlier in your career, you know, leaving the startup space and becoming an elementary school teacher, um, like what was that transition like and why, you know, what made you feel like that was the, the right decision at the time? And what did you learn from, from going back to elementary school? I know you, you touched on it briefly, but wanted to properly ask that question. 
Well, there were a few things. Um, one was the one startup I joined during dot-com was hugely successful. We were actually the fastest growing startup on NASDAQ, and we went from uh, joining it pre-IPO to a $26 billion valuation wow. to then the, the, the dot-com crash, right? And, and I had put a team in place where they didn't really need me. Mm-hmm. I had done relatively well there, and I thought, okay, how can I give back to the community? Um, teaching is, is a challenge in California, so I wanted to invest in that. But I was also curious about learning how people learn. Um, And that was really fascinating because one of my professors worked with Carol Dweck at Stanford. And she explained to me how the growth mindset theory came about. And this was all before Carol Dweck even published her book on it. Mm -hmm. So it was really the early thinking of it. And I think early on, it was sort of this notion that people have a growth mindset. And only over time, it evolved to what I experienced is that you can develop this, you can foster this, right? Mm-hmm. And, and so going back to help um, contribute back to, to California also created this huge curiosity for me on how do people learn. And learning in tech and learning in startups is also really important. Right. Yeah. And, you know, I think being able to find that, it's like, it's management and it's, and it's teaching and it's uh, yeah. Dealing with different personalities. I think taking it from one environment and bringing it back to another just opens up a whole new set of life experience. Um, And, you know, do you feel, do you feel that that was like a very integral part to your success in your career afterwards? Or do you feel like, Hey, maybe if I, even if I didn't go back to, to this elementary school teaching, would I still, would I be in the same place that I am today? Like, has that, gone through your mind or has it always been like no that was completely invaluable experience and your life would be totally different if you hadn't done that i think it helped but it may not be entirely critical so another thing that i thought about is um google did this survey once of all the engineers and said do managers actually help because there was this notion managers are just overhead and it's right right and they came back with and especially not technical managers, they came back with a ranked list from the surveys and they also compared it to, because it's a huge company, to which teams are successful and are not to sort of give a little more weight to the teams that are successful. What's their perspective on Mm -hmm. management? And the number eight reason was having a technology savvy manager. The number one reason people saw managers were valuable was in coaching, Mm -hmm. sort of helping people grow. And, and I think this is really important. There's a great book called Multipliers, which talks about as a leader, how you get more out of an organization by multiplying the individual rather than trying to do it all yourself, right? Mm-hmm. And so this is, this is kind of what got me also thinking about coaching. And then I looked up what is the most successful, biggest coaching organization in the world, um, coactive coaching and I joined those and went through the whole program and took all of those classes again because it's really useful to understand how it works so it's a different form of education yeah um, so I think I would have found my way to this in any way but understanding how people learn I think is key I'm also like three classes away from having a master's in psychology oh, wow. <laughs> which is also interesting in terms of you know especially group dynamics 
Yeah. And, and, you know, becoming an executive coach, did that unlock a whole new door of people, almost like your peers, your kind of coaching, coaching peers that are also in these, you know, high level type positions. Um, you know, was that, did that kind of act almost as like a networking opportunity or was it, you know, mostly like mentor mentee type of relationships or a lot of, you know, out like, you know, anyone you were doing executive coaching for, did you end up starting business or getting invested with, with something that they might've been doing through that relationship? So it wasn't so much starting business, but it was a great networking opportunity for exchanging experiences and thoughts because there's a, a great book called what caught you here won't get you there. Every situation is different. Right. And it was actually interesting um, right before COVID the CEO of a company in San Francisco called Plato HQ reached out to me and said, Hey, I've built this company that does mentoring. And one thing that we do is we have the CTOs and VPs of engineering get together for dinner once a week and mm -hmm. we just exchange stories. Right. Um, and so during COVID that became virtual of course, which also made it more interesting because that made it international. Yeah. So we had people dialing in from all over the world that were leaders of tech teams talking about what are the challenges, including COVID. So I think helping each other out is is a huge, valuable aspect of all of this. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think being able to sharing sharing kind of like war stories uh, is like, hey, yeah, like, you know, I did this and this turned out to be so terrible. Um, things like that. There's like. It's like, yeah, it's not all, it's not all, you know, peachy and great all the time, uh, especially when, when leading companies. And, you know, for you, I guess, you know, during your career, was there ever times when you were, you know, there was, you had a really rough patch or like, you know, company after company might not have been working out or a specific position wasn't working out. Was there ever a time where you were like, what am I doing? Is this, you know, is this really what I want here? Uh, did you have any second, second guesses on yourself um, and kind of the career you've chosen? Well, great question, Tom. I think in essence, it's not just was there ever a time, it's more was there ever not a time. <laughs> so um, when Hum Capital went through some some tough stretches as well, I remember talking to some of the folks and saying, you know, as I reflect back on every startup I've ever worked at, mm -hmm. I can't think of a single one that wasn't in a crisis moment where they thought at least once this is all going to fail. We're going to go out of business, right? Yeah. It's, it's not for the, the people that want to play it safe at all. And I was actually listening to a podcast yesterday called The Hidden Brain while I was picking up dinner for the family. And one of the things they said, their, their premise was, success is not about finding the one success. It's for having a high tolerance of failure. And they interviewed this famous actress, I forget who it was, and she said, 98 to 99% of the auditions she does, she fails and doesn't get the job. Mm -hmm. And I think startups are much the same. You, The ones that succeed are the ones that are willing to tough it out. Um, there's a great book by um, Horowitz mm -hmm. called uh, Only the Paranoid Survive. Right. Right. And yeah. he's like, you always have to look out for failure. It's just around the corner. And if you don't pay attention, you, you could easily fail. I have a slight spin on that, which I got out of a movie called Mavericks, which is fear is healthy, panic is deadly. 
Yeah, I like that. You always need to be afraid that something could go wrong so that you're ready for it. But if things do go wrong and you panic, then you're no longer acting rationally, right? Right. And yeah. so, yeah, there's been many times where you second guess and you say, did we do the right thing? And you can either throw in the towel or you can say, okay, what do I do from here, right? Right. And, and I know you've, you know, you've mentioned that you've been in situations where you've been, you know, dangerously, seriously close to shutting down before things really just took a turnaround. Um, how, how did you kind of weather that storm and, and, you know, dealing with not only your own emotions, but, you know, keeping the, you know, any CEO or other executive partners in that business, how do you keep them in line and, and keeping with that? It's like, hey, we can't panic here. Yes, this is a scary situation, but we need to keep thinking rationally and understanding like what is this going to mean both short term and long term and what sort of sacrifices are needed. But, you know, from real life experience, um, it's tough to be in a situation like that. I assume you can be prepared and coach yourself as much as possible. And then and then once it's actually happening to you, it's like, oh, no, like what was that, um, you know, for you personally, what was that experience like? Well, one of the things that I always like to talk to to people about when they're thinking about joining a company to say, look, it's a big decision for us to decide whether or not we're going to hire you. Mm -hmm. It's a bigger decision for you on whether you're going to join us because you're going to spend more of your waking life with us for the next few years than you do with your own partner or family. Right. right. And a lot of people go, wow, I never thought about it. Right. This is, this is like getting married. And I'm like, well, not a lifelong commitment, but it's that mentality that it kind of is like a family because you spend so much of your time at, at work. Mm -hmm. And so that also has a lot to do with surviving these things, right? You know, if, if you're a family going through a struggle, you don't give up, right? You find a way through it. Right. And if everybody has to go from eating steak to eating ramen for a while to make that happen, then that's what we do. And so being good to the people you have is is really important. Um, there's a book by Andy Grove. I forget what it's called. He also says, when you go through the layoffs, you have to be very conscious how you treat the people you let go because you're sending a signal to the people. There's my cat. <laughs> you're sending a signal to the people um, that you're keeping about how much you care for them and how much you're willing to do to help these people. And I think that's also hugely important is that you keep in mind that this struggle is something that we're sharing. And right. if we work together, that's how we find our way through it. Yeah. And it's like the, not only is there the greater, you know, struggle of the whole family or the whole company that is going on. It's like each individual has their own struggles that they, that they need to address and be, you know, be concerned about and, and take care of as well. Um, yeah. You know, there was an interesting story at Prosper. A year before the global pandemic, our head of risk said, okay, we're going to simulate a risk situation. Mm -hmm. A year before COVID, <laughs> she said, global pandemic, starting tomorrow, wow. everybody works from home. We're going to pretend that all of our borrowers who've got, you know, go into work type jobs are yeah. going to be struggling to pay off their loans. Let's see if we can make this work. And there were some glitches with people working from home, but we got that all fixed. And then when COVID actually hit, we knew there would be a financial impact to the company that could even sink the company, right? 
Right. And so the notion was we start off by laying off 20% of the people just to save money and have a buffer. Mm -hmm. And I thought, okay, is this what you would do with your family? Okay, we've got five kids. We're going to throw one out on the street, right? Yeah. No, not really. (laughs) So I made a suggestion that we cut everybody's pay to save that money. So everybody gets a 20% pay reduction. Now, we did a little graduated. The execs got more and the people at the lower range didn't didn't get a cut. Um, There was a lot of pushback saying, no, you're going to piss off everybody instead of just the people you let go. And I'm like, no, I don't think so. I think this is going to work. Mm-hmm. Right. And so everybody had to work from home. Everybody was working for less pay. And in the end of the year, it was everybody was really happy that we kept everybody. Right. It felt like a team. And then we thought about all the people that wouldn't be able to pay off their loans. And there were a ton of people said that they couldn't pay off their loans, like tens of thousands. Mm-hmm. And the engineers scrambled to put systems in place that allowed them to either reduce their payments or stall them or whatever. And more than 99% of the people were able to not default on their loans. Wow. And that created an excitement of even in this time of need, we can do something for people. And then mm-hmm. all the investors are like, wait, what's going on? Nobody's defaulting. Okay, we'll start reinvesting. And so it became this really great experience. By the end of the year, it was like one of the best years the company had had in 15 years. And employee morale, we always do a survey at the end of the year, had a double-digit dump jump, which it had never done. So you yeah, have to imagine well, you tell people, we're going to cut your pay by 20%, and their morale goes up in double digits. Mm-hmm. But it's because of this caring for the people and pulling together and making it happen. It was just a tremendous experience. Right. Yeah, I think it shows that, you know, you're you're looking at the bigger picture, not and not just like the short term. And I think, you know, I, I feel like we maybe have seen that a lot in you know the past 12 to 18 months with a lot of the big tech layoffs is the first thing that gets cut is, um, you know, the the headcount and the, the budget on what you pay your staff rather than, hey, where can we cut on, you know, potential like office space or, um, you know, executive pay, things like that, that are just, you know, astronomically more than some of the, you know, on the ground workers in a lot of these cases. Um, how do you, you know, how do you feel like some of those situations could have been handled a little better? And obviously during COVID there, you hear all these horror stories about the way that people did layoffs and, you know, just like, Hey, you're on this zoom meeting and you're, and then you just lose access, you know, 90 seconds into that without really getting any more information. Um, you know, I'm sure hindsight's obviously 2020, um, but you know, for future, what what would be a situation where you think a company that is going through, you know, rough financial times and, and not doing great, like how how would you suggest they deal with a situation like that um, when they you know need to make some sort of cost cuts, whether it's layoffs or operational costs, things like that? Well, I'm always careful about generic questions like that because. <laughs> There is no one answer to every problem because every situation, every market is different. Every company is different. Every set of people is different. So there isn't like, okay, in this situation, do this. Mm -hmm. Um, But I do think thinking about the people is important. Um, There's also a great interview out there somewhere of the CEO of Airbnb who talked about how did he think about what do we do in these tough times? Um, So he also thought about the people a lot. And for me, it's, you know, what keeps the company going? What's going to get us through the storm, right? 
the fastest boat doesn't always win the storm. It's the one that doesn't go under. Right. Um, Simon Sinek has this notion of an infinite game, which is you just need to survive. Mm-hmm. And that's where it can get tricky because you think, okay, the way we survive is we cut costs and the biggest cost is people. But if you cut the people instead of like we did reducing salaries or like you suggested looking for other spaces, and then you don't have the people left to pull you out of the storm. Right. So that's a really tricky thing. And it's also, it's a really hard thing for leaders to sort of say, how do we cut our own pay or how do we reduce our own ranks to make sure the company succeeds and, you know, our stock becomes worth something. Maybe that's the selfish way to look at it. Um, It's not easy. There's no one golden answer, but I think it's the people that are going to make it work. And Andy Grove's book also talks about that. You know, if you have to cut people, then it's morale that's going to be the most impacted. And you really have to think about how to keep the team together. Right. I think being able to, um, yeah, I, a like no, no situation is the same. No company is going to have the same, uh, you know, deal with the same thing. It's like, it's every, every time is going to be unique and there's got to be, you know, a different way that, that people handle it. Um, and I think, yeah, keeping morale after layoffs is, is, is difficult and you lose, you know, you lose these people that again, like you spend more time with them than you do your own family for, for a lot of people. Um, and it's, it's hard and it's difficult, but I think, you know, being able, when people are laid off, being able to take a, take a positive approach, keep their own personal morale up. is like, Hey, this is a new opportunity for me to get into, you know, something new. What can I take from this experience and, and bring into another company or my own company? Um, being able to kind of see the positive outlook there. Um, And, you know, before it even gets to that point, like I know you've dealt a lot with like smaller companies, finances, things like that, even like, you know, especially with HUM now, um, what are, like, are these things that are kind of like predictable down, down the line? Like, how do you kind of protect yourself from like, as a small company being like, Hey, things might get rough in a couple of years from now, we need to make sure that a, like, you know, people are paying our people and investing into things right now for the future, but also need to make sure we have some cash reserves in case, you know, one of these investments goes awry or doesn't pan out the way we did. Um, How would you say, you know, for a small business owner or someone that is running a, a smaller startup managing their finances, like what are some, I guess, more general advice um, that, that you could pass along from, from your experience? Well, I think flexibility is key. If I think about Broad Vision, the company I mentioned earlier from mm-hmm. pre-IPO to $26 billion, we started out being a um, personalized broadband TV company, kind of okay. like Netflix. You could look at your preferences and that would suggest which movies you should watch. And we, we had one customer in Korea of all places, but it was like, ah. Eh, is this going to work? And and the, the infrastructure just wasn't there for that. And then dot-com took off. And we shifted and said, okay, it's still sending content out, but it's not TV. Yeah. It's web-based stuff. How can we do this? And one of the things that enabled that, and that I've also seen in other companies, is if you have the underlying platform be as generic as possible, mm-hmm. that allows you to shift. So we had this notion of personalized content that was supposed to go to televisions, but instead we could use that same interface to send personalized content to websites. 
And so we had companies like Circuit City, American Airlines, Home Depot, all build their, their websites based on top of what we were doing. Mm. Um, and so being able to shift, I think, is really important um, because paradigm shifts will come. It's one of the things that uh, they talk about and only the paranoids survive is the market will change, right? So having flexibility, seeing it coming, being willing to do that, you know, not buying into the sunk cost fallacy necessarily, but saying, okay, there's things we need to let go because this is the new world. Mm -hmm. and, and how have you kind of utilized, you know, with all that knowledge, being able to bring in any new like machine learning or AI technology into, you know, analyzing any of that? I know, you know, it's a lot of what you're doing at Hub, um, you know, currently, but being able to, to take that and then also still have this like, uh, background of, of people too, in, in the management and kind of keep getting people like on board, uh, you know, within your own department or within, within the company as a whole. Um, is that something like, are people hesitant to, to, you know, invest in machine learning or AI or is it, or is it the exact opposite uh, where people are like, what can, what can we invest in this? Uh, because we, we want to see that return. So from what I've seen and heard, the VCs are all interested in it. Mm -hmm. The companies don't move as quickly, and this this is where it can become dangerous, right? Because we need to evolve, right? And it's it's there. This is all happening. Right. Um, when I went into teaching, I I arrived at this theory that learning is all about pattern recognition, right? Language is patterns. Human mm -hmm. interaction is patterns. Mathematics is patterns, and just understanding that. Um, and where ML and AI helps is exactly with that, is recognizing patterns. Mm -hmm. So how can we use that to accentuate what we're doing, right? Yeah. And so our, our latest thing that we've done is, we did some ourselves and we also leveraged a partner to do this, is to use LLMs to look at structured information we have on companies and say, how do you pull the patterns out of this? And then how can you take that and create a narrative that is easy for a CEO to understand? Um, but this is all about change. It's all about learning. And I think the investors are willing to invest. I think companies are a little reluctant or individuals are a little reluctant because it means learning something new and letting go of what you know and feeling safe about that, right? Right. And there is comfort in safety, but there's also the danger that you get left behind. Totally. Yeah. I think it's, uh, yeah, every, everyone's going to act different to, to new technologies, to new, new ways of doing things and being told that they should do something one way, but they don't want to. And how do they, they deal with that? Um, and, you know, I think from you, you know, back to, back to your management um, aspects, like I know you're, you're a talent whisperer, um, and what is, what is that exactly for those that aren't familiar with what that means in the, in the management space? Like what does that entail and kind of, how do you kind of get to that point over the course of a career, you know, going from, you know, day one manager have never managed someone probably don't know a thing about it. Uh, and you, you know, you kind of got a, the first people that you manage are probably, they probably get a little frustrated because they're like, Oh, I got this first time manager who really doesn't know what they're doing. And I feel kind of like a guinea pig. Um, you know, how do you go from that to, you know, 
talent whisperer being able to really understand the, you know, like the why and the how that, that things get done and really leave that influence yeah. on people. It's a little bit along the lines of what I mentioned earlier about multipliers. If you think about, yep. you know, when I thought about myself as an engineer, you know, if I can be a 10x engineer, how much more can I do? Mm-hmm. And then if you think if you're an effective leader, if you can help 10 engineers become 10x, you've now 100x the impact. Right. And so if you go at it from that perspective, it's all about making your team successful. And and that will, you know, bring everything up. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that for me is is tremendously important. And as far as the new managers go, I actually have um, this thing that I do with new managers. As I say, first of all, managing people. Ideally, we want you to experiment not with people, but we have to sort of see how it goes. So Mm -hmm. as somebody that wants to become a manager, start out by managing three interns. And at the end of the internship, I think two things need to happen, I tell them. One is each of the interns needs to say, this was an amazing experience. I absolutely want to come back and work for you guys. And I'm going to tell all my friends and family this is like the best place in the world to work. You need to get them that fired up, right? Yeah. And then you need to tell me, should we bring them back? Now, imagine now you've gone and explained to this person all of these things. You've created this great opportunity and they want to come back. Mm -hmm. And you need to tell them, sorry, I don't think we want you back. That's really hard as a manager. Think about what you're doing to that human, right? Yeah. But think about the converse. You got them all fired up. And before remote work, they packed up their bags. They told all their friends and the family, I'm graduating, got the dream drive job. They fly across the country. They find an apartment. They start working for you. And it turns out it doesn't work out. Yeah. Now you need to let them go. Now, what did you just do to that human? Right. And sort of that mentality, I think, is really important in a manager's mindset of the responsibility you have to making this individual have that good experience with where they spend all of their waking time, right? Mm -hmm. And so that I think is really important for the new manager because if they don't have that compassion, they're not going to be the manager that that individual wants. The other thing I do is kind of a dirty little trick. I say, okay, Tom, so you want to be a manager, we'll give you a trial do 50% management here. Mm -hmm. I'll give you some projects to lead or whatever. But in order to do that successfully, you need to let go of some of your individual contributor work. So go home on the weekend and think about what are the things you want to hold on to and what are you willing to give up? And so you come in on Monday and I say, okay, Tom, what is it? And you're like, okay, I can, you know, this, this code maintenance stuff, I can give that up and bug fixing, I can give that up. And Mm-hmm. But this cool project, this is the thing I want to hold on to, right? It's, it's new AI. It's so cool. And I'm like, guess what? Your baby is the thing you need to give up. And people look at me dumbfounded. Mm-hmm. And I say, if you give your baby up and you help somebody else be successful with it, then you will care to make them successful. If you give up all the stuff you hate, 
that investment won't be there. Right. They will also be less engaged than if you give them something that's really excited about that you're excited about, then they will become engaged. And that's a really hard mentality for people to grok. But when they do, they go, this really makes sense, right? Yeah. So as a leader, if you give the most interesting thing to people and you help them succeed at it, that's how you get the 10x people because the people that love what they're doing are always going to do the best job. Yeah, and I think, you know, from, you know, becoming a first-time manager, I think one of the hardest things to do is is delegation and being like, hey, I, I know how to do this the right way and the way that I like it. And how do I let someone go, go and do that? Uh, especially when it's something you, yeah, when you really care about it, but that's a great, I've never, you know, I've never looked at it that way. And that's a, you know, eye opening to me, which is awesome. And being able to see like, I personally am going to be much more invested in this person's success. If I care so much about the product or the, you know, the, you know, portion of work that they are working on. And I guess, you know, for my, from the work that I continue to do, it's like, then I need to do some of the, you know, the dull ad administrative type work uh, that, that keeps the thing, keep things running. But, you know, ultimately as a manager, you want to build a great team of people around you, uh, which is, there is a danger. Process. There is a danger with that. If you give up your baby, are you really giving it up? Or are you going to micromanage them to make sure it's successful? Right. Right. And so that's where it's also important to realize that if you spend all your time micromanaging, that you're not going to grow and you're mm -hmm. not going to take on the things, the new things that a management or a leader needs to do. Right. And that's one of the things that the Wiseman, I think is the author of multipliers talks about is the accidental diminisher, the person that really wants to help, but they get so involved that they diminish their team and they don't help them grow because they're always coming up with the solutions or answers. Mm -hmm. Even though it's well-intentioned, it actually gets you tied down in the weeds instead of being a leader, and it prevents them from growing, and then they lose the enthusiasm as well. Right. right? So uh, the letting go is a big part of giving up your baby too, right? Yeah. And I think it gets – I think people, as you manage more and more people and different types of people, you learn how to do it. It's It's – it's something that, you know, it's like, you don't learn that day one and you probably have to mess up. I know I did in my career, definitely messed up managing a couple of people. And I tried to manage everyone the same way because that's what worked for me. And it's like, you know what, my, I, I can't manage someone like they're myself. I need to manage them like how, you know, how CD gets managed or how Mark gets managed. It's like, they need to be managed in the ways that work for them so that they can be the most productive person and feel the most satisfaction from their work. And, if they feel that satisfaction, then I'm I'm gonna feel that satisfaction because that's that's ultimately my role is to make them, you know, enable them to be great, great people and hopefully great leaders one day themselves. Um, you know, if they want to go down that path. And you know, for people that don't want to go into management, I know especially within engineering, there's you know kind of two tracks. It seems like a lot of people take. They stay as individual contributors, going from you know like a senior software engineer to a staff to maybe you know, um, these just like these lead type roles and architects, or they go, you know, from a, you know, maybe in their late twenties, early thirties, go from a senior like individual contributor to a manager to director VP and kind of run that track. What, you know, 
what are kind of like some of the pros cons or like, what do you, what do you think are the, the main questions that you need to ask yourself and, and seriously sit down and ask yourself being like, Hey, do I want to be an individual contributor for my career or do I want to be a manager? Um, and, and, you know, you're going to have to give up and, and give and take on a few different areas, I'm sure, but just want to see what you, you know, throughout your career, what you've seen there and coaching people. Um, yeah. Like that. So it, it's really interesting because it depends a lot on, what you see and how you intend to do it. So one of the things after getting Twitch acquired by Amazon that I wanted to do was get really into hardcore tech again. Mm -hmm. And so I joined Pure Storage, which builds um, SSD drives up to petabytes for a large institution. So it's not just the software, it's the hardware and, and fault tolerance and all of that. Really hardcore engineering. And they have an incredibly high bar for hiring their engineers. And it's it's all about technology. And the people that come there are just, just the most amazing intellectual people in terms of solving technical problems. Um, and while I was there, I think it was like three years at the end, I was I was looking back and I realized the only engineers across both business units that ever went from engineering or into management were people that I coached. Mm. And there were people that had looked at my calendar and said, oh my God, I would so hate that. But then <laughs> over time, they began to learn just how fascinating it can be and how rewarding it can be to help other people. And one of the things that happened also is my boss, who was the first manager there, I'd worked with at Inview as well, said, hey, I hear you're pretty good at doing management closes for interviews because in order to hire all these great candidates, you also need to sort of sell them on this is a great place to work, right? Right. And he said, you should shadow me. I'm pretty good at doing these closes too, and then I'll shadow you. And I said, okay, in an hour, I've got an interview. If you've got time, come in and shadow me. And he did. And at the end of it, he said, okay, forget it. You're not shadowing me. You need to train every manager in the company on how to do a manager close because you really get these people to trust you and recognize that you have their best interest at heart and mm -hmm. they don't want to work anywhere else because they realize what it means to be managed at Pure is so different, or at least by you. And so then I did training classes to every manager in the company on how to do this. And it sort of opens your mind up in terms of really caring about the individual and their growth. And, but it doesn't just end at the, the interview, right? Because it's then the next thing is how do you help people become productive? How do you spin them up? You don't right. just hire them, put them in a seat and, and leave them alone. The spin up process is huge as well, right? So helping people become productive is also really key for mm -hmm. a manager and then retention is the other thing right you can hire as many people you want but if the good talent is walking out the door you're losing so much because every new person is an unknown that you have to train every person that leaves because they found a better job is a is a huge loss and it right and i've had throughout my experience people get job offers with more options more more salary and everything but they want to stay because they say, I just love the time I'm spending here. I'm learning so much. I feel 
respected and valued and this is just a great place to be right? yeah kind of the the exit interview thing that you've probably heard of is when they ask people why did you join a company it's because of the company but why did you leave the company it's because they didn't get along with their manager right i think that's coming from the recruiting space and talk you know i've talked to thousands of people looking for jobs over the over my career and uh you know i'd say number one is bad management um you know looking to leave a team and you know it's not necessarily they don't like what the company does but the person that you know maybe has been you know their most direct contact uh and then second comes you know it's like you know, money comes down to it a lot of times. Um, but I think, yeah, mm -hmm. seeing it, how that vast difference just between, you know, bad management and money, it shows you how important it really is. Like people will work for a little bit less if it means working with a good, if it means working with a good manager and they believe in the work that they're doing and feel that imp true empowerment. Um, and, and then that all the, you know, what you're saying actually gets taken into action. Like you don't just talk the talk, you got to walk the walk when it comes to, to management and, yeah be okay with letting go, of, you know, letting go of the leash a little bit to let someone else, you know, grow and become better and make their own mistakes. Um, and, and when they do make mistakes, being able to find a way, Hey, what did we learn from this situation? I'm not mad. Let's figure out how to make it better next time. Uh, I think is, yeah. is important there as well. Um, yeah. That's, it's kind of the notion of radical candor, right? Mm -hmm. um, I always say radical candor is best received if it's served in the interest of the employee, right? Yeah. And and so one of the things I like to ask is if it's also between two architects, if you've got two different opinions on the right way to do things, before you get into the battle of what the right way to do it or as a manager to employee, take a step back and say, does everybody in this conversation believe that everybody else is trying to come up with the best solution. Right. That we're trying to do the right thing for the company, for the technology, for the customer. Do we all believe that's the objective we have in mind? If the answer to that is no, then you got a bigger problem to solve. <laughs> you need to start with that. If the answer to that is yes, then I say what you're doing now is you're standing shoulder to shoulder and saying, okay, I want to hear your idea and I want you to hear mine and we're shoulder to shoulder looking at the problem to come up with the best solution. Because mm -hmm. the other way it's nose to nose and it's fighting, it's defensiveness, it's not wanting to give in. Right. And so I think when it comes to that, it's really important to provide the environment where you can help people grow by letting them realize that's what you're there for. And when you say, you know, I see how you did that. But maybe it would have been better to do this. And I know you're trying to do the best thing for the company, but might have this been better? Let's talk about it, right? And engage in the conversation. Yeah. And talking about it and truly talking about it rather than just doing it for them. Uh, because yeah. that way, you know, nobody learns from that. Uh, exactly. And, and, and people, you know, the employee who maybe made the mistake probably feels a bit diminished when they realize, when they see you just doing it instead of them. Um, and, yep. be like, and then the next time you're going to have to do it again. So you're actually diminishing yeah. yourself by that too. Yeah. Because now you have to pay more attention. Yeah, no, it's, um, I know it's a, it's always a management is ever evolving and I don't think you can ever truly be done learning and there's always going to be new people and new, you know, 
demeanors and personalities that you're going to be dealing with. But I think it's a, it's a great life skill to, to have and, and to be able to work with people and understand like, yeah, how do you get, how do you get the most out of people? Um, and what, yeah. what can you put in yourself to, to make that happen? Um, Uh, Simon Sinek said something about that. It's not about getting the most out of them. It's helping them be the best possible selves they can be. Mm. The outcome is the same as value. But if you look at at helping them become the best, it's less you're trying to squeeze everything out of them and use them. You're trying to empower them. And that's a win-win. Right. Right. Yeah. And ultimately, yeah, them doing you know, feeling empowered and being great and being happy at work is going to make you better at your job. And probably, you know, you'll see success from that alone. Um, excellent. Um, awesome. Well, CD, this has been great conversation. Um, I've really, you know, appreciated your insights into, you know, management, especially, you know, taking, you know, discussing a little kind of taking a career step back a little bit into teaching and kind of how that has been extremely important to you and kind of, um, you know, being able to to lead where you are and learn new things from a new environment. Um, but anything else you want to, I know you've got a website and, you know, you've got some coaching, but anything you want to plug into to the to the end of the episode before we before we wrap up here? Well, it's the, the taking a step back in some ways. It can be just like going to another company, mm-hmm. right? Anybody that's gone to a new company realizes the first few months of a new job are just hell because you're drinking from the fire hose. You have imposter syndrome, right? You don't know if you can actually do all of this. Yeah, man, what a tremendous learning opportunity that is. And if you do that every once in a while, then you do really well. And that same podcast yesterday was talking about athletes and musicians that just push and, and work on things really hard, eventually plateauing. And then they need to shift how they're doing that. And they sort of said, it's like every two years, it helps to take a step back. And I learned this also when I became national champion in ultimate Frisbee is if you always practice the same way, you're going to plateau. You need Mm -hmm. to find new ways of doing endurance training or strength training or strategies or whatever. And so for me, either shifting within a company or shifting between companies is also a phenomenal way to learn. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Taking new opportunities, new roles, new, yeah. And just constantly learning uh, new things or improving around the things that you, you thought you knew already, but has changed so much in the past couple of years. Um, and the best way to do that also is to leave people behind that you have grown. Right. Mm-hmm. And we talked about Bill Campbell earlier um, before this call, I think. Yeah. It was called the trillion dollar coach because he created a trillion dollar valuation in, in Silicon Valley, supposedly. And I remember when he was leaving into it and he pulled Brad Smith onto stage and he said, one of the most important things for a leader to do is to groom their replacement. And Brad is now going to be the CEO of Intuit. And man, what a CEO he was. I loved working with Brad. Um, So being able to move on and do new things, you feel good about if the people you're leaving in place are able to do it so you're not abandoning a company you're leaving it in a really good place right and hopefully better and bigger than than where how you left it is ultimately what you want you know it's yep. like that's again like that's your baby that's your investment you want you want to see it succeed and, and live on it's your legacy so into it uh obviously has been around for for a while so they're, i don't think they're going anywhere <laughs> anytime soon so 
um, yeah, great leader with from Bill Campbell, and yeah, was a huge figure in Silicon Valley. You know, especially in those early days. So, um, you know, probably a great person to have known, and great book to read if for any listeners that haven't read it. Um, Trillion yeah. Dollar Coaches is, is great. You can listen to it on Audible and whatnot. But um, yeah, well, CD, I know you can. You know, if people want to hear more about you or find more about your insights, talentwhisperers.com um, is a great great place to go. But you know. Uh, for you, any any final words? Well, I don't think it's for everybody, and no one recipe solves for all of it. But the willingness to tough it out and stay through the struggle, and to find the value in learning from failures, is great. But you can also learn from successes. Agreed. Yes, it's like failures are failures are important, but success feels good. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Awesome. Well, I appreciate you taking the time today and uh, I hope everyone has enjoyed the episode. All right. Thank you, Tom. Great for the conversation.